Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. This is Paul Robinson. My special guest on the pod this week is one of the world's most popular and respected soul and R&B singers, Alexander O'Neill. And we meet one half of Diable Longdon, a folk-inspired collaboration with an excellent new album that came out earlier this year. Born in Mississippi, Alexander O'Neill moved to Minneapolis at the age of 20 and became involved in a vibrant and exciting music scene where jazz, funk, soul, R&B and pop fused together to forge his immensely successful career over four decades. He's enjoyed a string of hits including Criticize, Fake, If You Were Here Tonight and Saturday Love with Sherelle. Now resident in the USA and Manchester, he was back here for a short while to play some live dates. I put it to him that he seemed to be loving playing live. Well, Paul, I really do, man. You know, I enjoy it. And, you know, it's great to still be getting above out of what I do. You know, I finally figured out, I think I figured out, you know, what I do for a living, and that is um, make people feel good. And it's an honor to be able to do that still, and especially during these hard times. So to be at Boysdale here in uh, London, it's a great honor because I always enjoy performing for my British fans. Well, your British fans have always been very loyal. And in fact, there have been times in your career when you've been even more successful and more loved here than you were in the U.S. Well, yeah, I think it's a matter of speaking, you know, but sometimes uh, if you look at the demographics of what you're dealing with, you know, uh, taking into consideration that Britain is the size of probably Oregon, you know, yeah, we're tiny. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a tiny country with a lot of people. And so, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, my British fans have been very, very loyal to me over the years. I think that even during the years that they kind of pretty much told America who I was going to become as an artist through their acceptance long before American really got it. You know, because in America we have a lot of... Uh, legends and heroes that we gravitate to in reference to R&B music. And sometimes, you know, over a period of time, you get the honor of being, um, hopefully, hopefully, if you have the catalog, legendary. And then some of us, we just end up competing with each other so much. So, um, you know, it's an honor to be a among the A-list here, shall I say. Well, it's great to have you here. Now, let's go back to your early days. You grew up in Mississippi. What was life like for the, the young Alexander in Mississippi? Country boy, you know. Uh, pretty much all my roots. Uh, I'm a, in, in down south in Mississippi, you know, we have two kind of country boys. you got a country boy who's really country, and you got a town boy. So I was a town boy, right? And so I grew up, uh, we weren't wealthy, but we didn't know that. We knew that we were poor, but we weren't poverty poor. Because going up in Mississippi, you know, especially black people, you know, they network with each other. And there's always somebody there in the family, but so rich uh, with family until everybody takes care of everybody. So, you know, a lot of things that I was oblivious to, I wasn't aware of some of the stuff, but, um, it was a great upbringing, and it was more family-oriented than, than anything else, you know. Then there was a lot of the bad sides dealing with racism. Oh, God. From the 50s and 60s, it was atrocious, you know, uh, of the things that were going on, uh, especially in the southern region of the United States. Um, dealing with uh, the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, I'll never forget that I was... Um, 
10 years old and I was in the fifth grade and we were in school and these clan, clansmen, they were bold, rolled right through our neighborhood with Confederate flags outside of the thing and they were hanging in, must have been maybe 20 cars. Now, one of the things, uh, Paul, that we don't, that doesn't frighten us. That didn't frighten us, but that was them flexing power, you know, saying, I can do this and I can do anything I want to do. And so that, uh, you know, accepting that in itself was, uh, you know, was a hell of a pill to swallow, you know, because, you know, one thing about, especially down south, there was a lot of pride in our neighborhoods and our stuff. We, you know, we wanted, we want equality, but we're not trying to be, you know, to, to, to be white, to live a white life, to live this kind of stuff. We just want equality. We're quite proud of being ourselves, you know? And so it was a, it was a different kind of upbringing, but one that had diversity, uh, and it was full of love, full of our love. And the love is what really matters, and I'm sure that got you through. Let's talk about some of the music you were listening to when you were a boy. So what sort of artists were you listening to or inspired by? One thing, growing up in the South, we had a wealth of great radio. And you had to know all kinds of songs. You couldn't just know black songs. You had to know all kinds of songs. You had to know country, western you had to know pop, you had to know rock, you had to know R&B, blues, especially. So the radio was so diverse. It was so, it's so ironic because they say it was all the racism, but yet and still, people still communicated through music. And sometimes, being a black artist or a white artist, it transcends color. It, the music was great, it was good, and so, Growing up in that environment, I had a chance to experience a lot of different kinds of music that I like, not only just R&B, so we went to a blues, we went just limited to those things because you had to, if you're gonna really be a student of music, you had to understand all kinds of music. And when a song was a hit record, it was just a hit record, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I, um, I'll never forget the first record I ever bought that I ever paid, I paid a dollar for, was James Brown, I Feel Good. That's the first record you bought? First James Brown, I Feel Dan, Good. Dan what a Brown. great choice. Yeah, I, James yeah. Brown, I Feel Good. You had great taste as a young guy, Alex. Yeah, um, but I listened to all kinds of music, and one thing I'm so glad to be raised in the South with is that, you know, we had black radio, you had popular radio, you had all kinds of radio, but you, everybody listened to it all. You didn't just tune into black radio. You listened to everything. And, and, and that's really healthy, isn't it? To listen to that range. Very healthy. Yes. Yeah. Very healthy, you know. And so, therefore, you know, my perspective on all kinds of music, it affected it. It, it has its effects today. That's the reason why I accept great music. If a song is a great song, I just call it a great song. I don't care who wrote it, you know. I would have to say anywhere from Otis Redding, Brooke Benton, Nat. King Cole, uh, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Donny Hathaway. Donny Hathaway is one of my favorite singers in life. I've often said that Donny Hathaway never got his due respect. As a songwriter, he's an excellent musician and excellent. I mean, he was a prolific songwriter. I mean, just absolutely excellent. And he never got his respect. But Donny Hathaway is probably the guy who 
helped to mold Alexander O'Neill, my approach to singing. Fantastic. I mean, he had a hit here with Back Together Again. Yeah. But um, have you got a favourite Donny Hathaway song, a track that you think was really influential to you in your singing style, as you've just explained? Um, several. I would probably say, you know, one thing coming out of the Minneapolis music scene, you got to be able to do be uh, be able to do funk music. You got to make it funky. But yeah, I always knew that I could do the ballads, right? But it's to sell the funk and to, to, to mix the two together, it's, it's like really important. And the ghetto, Donny Hathaway, was uh, my, well, it was an anthem. When that, record, when that album came out, Donny Hathaway Live, the Donny Hathaway Live album, that was my passion. That was my passion. And so, I mean, every time, you know, we, back in the day, we were doing eight tracks, you know what I'm saying? Eight track, because you couldn't move an eight track, you just had to wait till it goes around. And so, it was like that went in the eight track and it stayed in the eight track, you know? And uh, but, yeah, it was so, because the ghetto was such an anthem and such, uh, so well produced and, and well written, I, I really, my, one of my favorite tracks. So let's talk about Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who worked with you on so many records. When did you meet and how did that friendship develop? Well, actually, Paul, it started back in Minneapolis in the early 70s because everybody was just fumbling their way around, trying to find their way around. And so uh, we were all very competitive in the local music scene. And they were a part of a band called Flight Time. And at that time, I think I just established my first band, which was called the Black Market Band. And so we were all just, it was several different local artists and local bands. And so we all knew each other from the local music scene, but they didn't all play in the same band. Okay. And I convinced Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, after I got the nod to join Flight Time, after a lady who who left Flight Time, her name was Cynthia Johnson, who did a song called Funky Town. With, oh. uh, Won't you take me to Lip Sync. Funky Town, yeah, yeah. Lip Sync. Yeah. And she, that's her, she left, she was the lead singer for Flight Time. When she went to do that, they were left without a singer. Now, Flight Time wasn't used to having a male singer. They always had female singers. So they really didn't get me, I wasn't a part of the band, but I was a part of the show. You're the wrong gender. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they said, well, we, you, you can front the band, right. but you won't be a member of the band. How bizarre. That, that's very bizarre. Yeah. And so, but they didn't know at the time when they did made that decision that if you got a great, a good lead singer and a great lead singer, the lead singer becomes the band. I'm sorry. That's just, they didn't, they was like holding on to that. But eventually I did become a member of the band. How did you persuade them to let you in? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, uh, Terry Lewis and Jellybean Johnson, they were strong members. And after I was instrumental in helping to form some of the members, I convinced Jimmy Jam to join the band. Because Jimmy Jam was a DJ in a local club. But he never, he was a great musician, but he never, he was so cautious about joining anything. Okay, he, you know, and I persuaded him to do it because they were north side musicians and band. We were south side. So we kind of brought it together. And so 
they finally, eventually, we started, the show started getting bigger. And so we had the opportunity to open the show for big time acts that were coming to town, like Cameo. Okay. They came to town, we opened the show for them, the Barcades. Barcades, yeah. We opened the show for them. And so at that point in time, we all dressed alike. So it was inevitable that if I was going to be on that stage that night, I would have to be in space outfits or whatever we were wearing. Did you enjoy that, all the, all the gear and the outfits? It was fun. It yeah, was yeah. fun at the time uh, because we would, it was a great, it was a fun memory in my career and my life because everybody was on the rise. But we didn't know that we were on the rise. But everybody was stepping up their game because when Prince got his deal, and after the second album, you know, he really was being established. Then, we, then it gave the local musicians direction. We started believing, started believing that we could make it, that we could actually Because he'd shown the way. Yeah, it, that we could get to the next level. If, it's almost like if Prince could do it, then it's, it, it, it's out there to be done, right? And we knew that in Minneapolis, St. Paul, music scene that we were a very unique musical community. We knew that because we had, it's, such, it's so interracial. It's one of the most interracial communities in America. That's a fantastic thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. Brilliant thing. Yeah. Yes, it is yeah. because yeah. it gets you prepared how to deal with people. You know, a lot of times we stereotype each other and the things we know of each other because we don't know anything about each other, really. We really don't know any. You don't. So if you, here's a scenario. If you're from West Side Chicago of, of North Philadelphia, you wouldn't know anything about how white people live, how, how, how people interact. Only thing you would know is the stereotype stuff that you hear. That's all you would ever know. So therefore, your knowledge would be limited. But in Minneapolis, St. Paul, we only have a few places in the country that were synonymous for that type of community. And that was Minneapolis, St. Paul, Seattle, Washington, and Miami. In Miami, a lot of Miami was based on the diversion of uh, all of the different types of groups from Cuba to everything else. And the gate, more importantly, what made the interracial thing more noticeable in Miami was the gay community in Miami. And so that made it more free because Miami was open, it had to be more open because, you know, people are allowed to love who they want to love, be with who they want to be with, and, and you can't uh, suppress that with your own stuff. It just, there's no room for it. There's no place for it. God don't make mistakes. Okay, he doesn't make mistakes. That's a really good way of thinking about it. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes. Yeah. So it's up to us to be responsible for each other. So anyway, having that kind of stuff, we started believing in Minneapolis that we really could achieve at this next level. But what we didn't know, that we were going to be setting a tone for groundwork for history in the music industry. We didn't have a clue as to that. We knew we were so qualified as musicians and entertainers. It was because we had already had um, great artists and especially musicians that come out of Minneapolis, St. Paul area. People like jazz musicians like Bobby Lyle, yeah. jazz musicians like Hubert Eves, 
um, we had Eric Garrott playing drums for the Weather Report. We had white drummer Bill Lawton playing drums for Sly and the Family Stone. All that stuff that you saw, that, this was all Minneapolis boys. Then you got Bob Dylan coming from Minnesota. You got all this stuff here that says this is a, this area is an untouched, you know, it's untouched. And so one thing led to another and, you know, we're just glad to be a part of the Minneapolis of that music history. It's fantastic history and great to hear that integration. Let's fast forward to the first Alexander O'Neill album, solo album, (laughs) Alexander O'Neill. And wow, what an album this is and so many hits. And let's start talk about If You Were Here Tonight first, because you talked about ballads. And If You Were Here Tonight is one of the classic ballads everybody adores. It was, you know, uh, Paul, certain songs that you record, that song was so natural for me. Um, Written by Monty Moyer keyboard player for the time. Um, when I heard the song, now had I sang it or somebody else was sang it, I'm glad that I did sing it, but it was such a hit record. Okay, it was a, it was a hit recording. So when you heard that song, you knew it was a hit? I knew that it was, going, that it was something way special. But I had, you know, at that time, Paul, when I was recording, man, I was just doing what I do. I was just doing what I do. And they took what I did and made it into something. Because certain things that an artist does, you can't produce it. You can, I don't care, but you can produce a track, you can give them a great track, but the reason they get a certain type of artist is because of what the artists bring to the track, which makes the track, you know? And so, all of the things in my voice, everything that I did, I was prepared for it, actually, because I did local record. I thought I was one of the few artists in the Twin Cities that were actually spending a lot of time in the studio. So I was really getting my way around the studio, knowing the difference in live performance and studio, what, how you can achieve certain things technically in the studio, certain things like giving a producer tone. If a producer can't match up tone, then you can't, he can't go forward. But I learned a lot of that stuff, you know? And so I was so prepared at the first album, Paul, for success. Uh, I was way prepared, but I didn't. Look, the deal wasn't even actually supposed to be mine. Oh, uh, really? No. Oh, okay. It was, it was a deal that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis had just did the High Hopes on SOS Band, first single. And the deal was an artist called Jeffrey Robinson. And Jeffrey came out to Minneapolis to record, but certain artists can't perform in the studio. Now you hear them on stage and you say, okay, I'm gonna give them a deal, but they, when they get in the studio, maybe they come short. So they had such a difficult time with this guy, and it, it just couldn't happen. So they said, okay, I know, we'll, we'll give it to Alex. That, and that's why I tell people, you never know who's in the house. You never know where your deal's gonna come from. Uh, I knew that that I was gonna make it because if I was good enough to be fired by a prince, I knew that I was good enough for the music industry. But I knew I was gonna make it, but I had no idea where it was gonna come from. And I found out that I took a trip and never left the farm. 
It's like taking a trip and never left the farm. I never left Minneapolis. You know, everything went from Minneapolis to the world. And so it was great. The great, the first album was such a great opportunity. And, you know, it was so exciting because I was singing for my life. I was singing for my family. I was singing for Mississippi. I was singing for everything that they said I couldn't be. Everything that was against me that said I couldn't be. You know, coming from Mississippi, man, we had to overcome so many stigma uh, labels that were put on us. And one of them was intelligence. A black man from Mississippi, the intelligent level of a black man from Mississippi opposed the intelligent level of a black man from Los Angeles. We had to, that That's was, crazy, of course. Totally crazy. Absolutely. But at the same time, you know, I mean, it definitely is crazy. Um, taking in consideration the contribution, because everything, the contribution that Southern black men contributed toward the moving forward of our race, how could you say who's intelligent and who's not? Because someone has to do a certain things to get an end result that, that makes them not intelligent or that makes them intelligent, okay? So we had to overcome a lot of stuff like that. It was so many things, barriers. So when I got the first deal, and I'm still holding the record, there's no one from Mississippi yet that we have great artists, Elvis Presley, Tupelo, Mississippi. We have endless amounts of R&B artists from B.B. King, Blue, uh, uh, David Ruffins, Temptations, uh, all of that stuff there. I mean, it's an incredible it's, list of it, so it, many amazing artists. And on and on. But in the R&B sector, all of these years, 40 some years later, there only been on a half a handful of artists that even excel to the level, and I've been very blessed and very favored to uh, excel to the level of an Alexander O'Neill as a solo artist on R&B. Now you did, David did it, David Ruffin did it, but it's the Temptations. Alexander O'Neill's never been anything but Alexander O'Neill, and that's a blessing. So, and I'm still, I'll I be waiting to see who's the next artist gonna come from Mississippi to get up here and do this, right? And so far, so far, it's only been one. Hey, and that's Alexander O'Neill, you know. You, you've created a class of your own, and, and rightly so. You talked about R&B. Let's talk about your US number one R&B song, which of course was brilliant, Fake. Oh, wow. What a song. Let me tell you something. One thing about uh, Fake, uh, I, one of the great stories I, I have about Fake, when Fake went number one, it kept Michael Jackson out for two weeks, right? <laughs> I and, bet he was upset. <laughs> well, not really, because Michael was a fan of mine. Okay. Uh, it kept Michael out for two weeks. I mean, just keep Michael Jackson out. Well, we were the same record company, okay? We were Sony, you know, Epic Records epic and records, the Epic yeah. side. Yeah. And so, but to keep Michael out for two weeks, you knew that wasn't going to last. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the first week when you got the number one, you want to be thankful that I got the number one. And I did have the number one. That was great. But it wasn't my first number one record. My first number one record was Innocent. Oh. My, in my career. And that's not very very often that artists come out with their first album and get a number one record. Unusual. And, yeah. and, and had all of this stuff. But we had so much historical stuff went into the first album. But my first number one record was Innocent. And then I got another one with Fake. 
And uh, that was a, that was a great time. But like I said, to keep Michael out for two weeks, we knew that when we saw it the second week, everybody was, we was like shocked, right? You know, the record company, everybody was like, wait a minute, we got number one. You mean tell me another week, Michael's out? And then after that, he just rained, you know, forever. Still one of my biggest hits. I, you know, it's like when I do my shows here in the UK, it's like my fans, they'll, you know, Paul, having to be blessed with a large catalog of music. And so, you know, criticize. I really, I co-wrote that song with Jelly Bean Johnson. I never really thought much of this song. Really? I, I, it's it, a beautiful you know, like, song. It's like one of my least, it's not, I, I can't say favorite now because it's done so much stuff for me. Now it's my favorite for several reasons. But I had done so many other songs that I was more passionate toward than criticized. And I was like, okay, yeah, it's all right. You know, I'm like, that. yeah, it's all right. You know, it'll, it'll be, it's all right. And not to, unbeknownst to me that it would become my anthem here in the, uh, England and the UK and uh, pretty popular about? in America as well. Yeah, what do you think it is about that? Why do you think it's become such an anthem? Because it's just, it's, everyone knows that song and I'm sure you have to play that on your shows. Oh, without a doubt. But, yeah. You know, uh, Listen, you know, one thing a lot here, um, I think, is the fans here. Uh, I, I was uh, very shocked to, 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 to realize the, the, the amount of R&B enthusiasts, fan-wise, here in uh, England and the UK. I, I, I didn't know that. We as Americans, you know, we think that the only place that exists in the world is America. You know, that's what we think, and that's, you know. And so I didn't know that there were so many R&B fans here. Criticized, I don't know exactly the appeal that it has more so to, because my British fans made that song seriously. You know, I have big fans in America that they'll say, are you bigger here than you are in America? In a certain sense. But I have great, huge fan following in America, and they like what they like, but they don't really pick a hit like they do in England. They take the time in, in England to pick that song, to pick your things and say, hmm, that's the song. You think, I thought it was something else. Out of that uh, hearsay album, I thought that, I thought my favorite song was Crying Over Time and all of that stuff there. But criticized was what they said this has substance and staying power. And guess what, Paul? They were right. They were right. So let's talk about Sherelle. You had several hits with her. How did that partnership come about? I love Sherelle. I, I really do. Working with her is such a treat. Uh, she's like a sister. We like sisters and brothers. Uh, a lot of people have faded us as other things, but we're not, okay? We just, it feels that way because what we do together is natural. You know, she came together through Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, she had already had a career, and we were with the same record label, Taboo Records. So she said, well, what a great idea. You got these great producers on board. They're going to be around for a while. They produce Sherelle. They produce you. Let's get them to do a song on you. Now, we never actually sang together in the studio. Oh. Other, than, uh, other than on my uh, Love Makes No Sense album. But we never really sang this. Never knew love like this, the Saturday love. We never... It was, she did her part, I did my part. And then they cut them together. And they put it together. 
Wow, didn't know that. Yeah, but it felt like... It doesn't sound like it. It, it sounds like you're next like to each right other. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh, baby, yeah. You know? <laughs> and with her and I, we you know, I often describe it as it's just natural. It's a natural collaboration. Um, and I'm just so thankful to, to have her and be a part of her career. You know, I often say that Sherelle has her own show and her own fan, and I have my own show and my own fan. But together... We are very powerful, and, and, and that's the beauty of having it like that, you know. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, well, you had hits. I mean, you had several hits with her and big hits. Oh, it's great. You know, we were voted by Vibe magazine, I think, about five years ago, or something like that, the number one single of all time. Wow. Saturday Love. Now, with me... I go, I go number. I see, I see. I go number one single of all. They got all these people: Marvin Gaye, Tamatier, Marvin Gaye, uh, uh, Diana Ross. They got this, that, and they got every Peach Nerve. They got every duet, and then all of a sudden they go boom, 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 knocking down. I go, where we at? Right? I'm done. Everybody else. I turn the page, and me and my wife, we like almost hit the floor. <sighs> Wait a minute, honey, you're not going number one of all time, but obviously. That's a, this is a new generation, and that's the way they felt. Because the people who I grew up on, who I doted on, like Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell, uh, that was that was the kind of you know combination like Alexander O'Neill and Sherelle. But I didn't know anything like that. I'll never forget that Terrell and I were performing in San Diego, California, and this lady called. We were doing a radio interview, and she called in. She said, I just want to thank you guys for putting this record out. And she said, my children have learned, these are little kids, have learned days of the week on Saturday Love. You know, I mean, you know, so I was like, yeah. well, that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, that's a very Educational good Educational as well. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday Love. <laughs> it was a good thing. Well, look, it's fantastic having you in the UK. Obviously, um, you're doing smaller gigs. Um, if you're able to, will you come back next year? And is there going to be any new Alexandro Neal material? Well, actually, Paul, I, this is a scoop. You get the scoop. Thank I, you. I'm, I, I've just moved to Manchester. And so we live, I mean, we always have been from America to England, back and forth. Uh, I just moved to Manchester to work with a wonderful group of guys out of Manchester, a band called Mama Freedom. We just did a new album of Alexander O'Neill that's kind of autobiographical oh. of my life. It's about growing up in Mississippi, a lot of the songs, and we co-wrote a lot of, a lot of the music together, so, but it, it's not vintage Alexander O'Neill. It's not the typical thing. This is, uh, it, I came out of my comfort zone to do this album. So it's something very different from what I normally do. But this thing is probably one of the best albums I've ever done. So it's going to be coming out. This album will be coming out, I'm hoping, sometime this year. But for sure, the single is going to be out within the next couple of months. And uh, two singles, we're going to release two singles on the album. And it's about all kinds of stuff that I grew up with, racism, but it's about positivity, moving forward, all kinds of stuff like that. But you got, it's, it's one of the best, I can honestly say that Paul is one of the best albums that I've ever recorded, best project I've ever worked on. And I'm looking forward to see 
seeing how it's been rece being received when it comes out. Well, we look forward to that. That's very exciting news, and thank you. So, single before the end of the year, album out end of the year next year, and you'll come back and, and tour if we can do bigger venues too. You'll come back. Love to, love to come back. Always, uh, you know, I had already set for a big tour before COVID, and so we just got to wait this thing out, take care of each other, yeah. and it's gonna get greater later. I will come back and tour, but it's getting time as I'm getting older. You're looking great, by the way. Thank you. Old is no excuse. You look great. I'm getting older, and I, it's just not, you know, as much as I have a passion for my music, I don't know if it's something that I want to do my whole life, you know? But uh, right now, I'm still enjoying it, Paul, and I just enjoy uh, performing. I love performing for my fans all over the world. Looking forward to coming back here again. On my last note, i got to give you this scoop. Sure. My charity is Homeless Worldwide. We're doing a surprise Christmas song that's going to be released. I'm not going to tell you the song, but it's, it's out of sight. It's going to be released here in the next, before, before Christmas. Yeah. Oh, this thing is going to be out of sight. And every all proceeds to go to my charity, Homeless Worldwide, because that's what I've been involved in these last months, and I'm very, very passionate about that. Well, that's fantastic. Look forward to this new single. I'm telling you, it's going to be a surprise. You're not going to, look, you guys are not going to see it coming, okay? <laughs> and fantastic you're supporting Homeless. That's a brilliant charity to be supporting, and another great reason to buy it, apart from the fact I'm sure it's an amazing record. Can't wait for the new album. Alexandra Neal, keep coming to see us. Keep coming to the UK. We love you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul, for having me. God bless you. Thank you, brother. Thank you. All right. The humble and very gracious Alexander O'Neill, and what an honour that he called me brother. Very much after the Olympics, we as East London were able to show the world that there's a place called Stratford, and it's not the Shakespeare one, there's this other place where we've built something absolutely amazing that the whole of the world are looking at for a few weeks. And then the, all, the, all the media people disappeared and leaving us with, you actually look at it and you go, well, why isn't there a local radio station for East London? And that was kind of the first thought. Also understanding there's lots of people who could usefully be involved in that. So there's those two reasons. It's like, well, maybe it's an idea to set up a radio station around here. Let's give it a go, see what happens. It really was just like that. We are the voice of East London, ELR. Next to Dybal Longdon, a collaboration between vocalist Judy Dybal, ex-Fairport Convention, who sadly passed away in July 2020, and Big Big Train songwriter and frontman David Longdon. Their album, Between Breath and a Breath, on English Electric, is out now with the Gatefold Vinyl Edition on the Plain Groovy label. I asked David Longdon about his musical influences that inspired the album. Um, my mum and dad would play a lot of music. Um, my dad played a lot of, um, I don't know, I guess instrumentals, that kind of thing lots of instrumental music it would be easy listening so um, all those kind of like uh, uh, I don't know but backrack type songs and that, that type of thing um, they but they were instrumental versions of them uh, I had an uncle uh, called um, Jack Herring and Jack was um, a collier and he got a love for uh, classical music but he also liked country and western so you could quite happily listen to Johnny Cash one afternoon and uh, and with a, with a bit of a Puccini thrown in for good measure. So it's, um, 
bit of a mixture of things. And then when I was um, kind of discovering my own music, I was strongly influenced by a, a friend of mine's elder brother, a guy called Ian Radford, um, who's sadly no longer with us. But Ian's musical tastes kind of imprint, imprinted onto me uh, very definitely. And um, that was um, that was it really. So I, from Ian, I got this love of the Who, who are still my favourite band, and uh, I, you know, and those kinds of things, um, Led Zeppelin, you know, Black Sabbath, that type of stuff, Pink Floyd, uh, all those kinds of things. And, uh, and also, when I was about 14, I started moving away from orchestral sort of things at school, playing in the school orchestra, and I started playing my flute uh, in kind of folk rock type bands, and that's when I kind of thought, oh, okay. I'm one of these. I, this is, I'm this type of musician. That's when the penny dropped. So that's um, that's that's how that's how I found out what I I was really. With the flutes, you could have been Nottingham's Ian Anderson. I could have been. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, flute was a, was born out of laziness. Um, when I was doing my O level in music, um, in order to go on to do the A level, you had to play an orchestral instrument. Uh, so I chose the flute. <laughs> the reason I chose the flute is because it was the smallest instrument I could think of and uh, it, I could have fit it in my bag so laziness was a, a big very part practical. <laughs> yeah. very practical so when you're listening to all this music um, were you at this point just doing it for fun and hanging around with your friends or were you thinking maybe this is something I'd like to do as a profession I've always been serious about music I think um, growing up in Nottingham uh, as I did at that time, music was a, it was a serious thing. People took it very seriously, and it had um, it had weight in in the community as well. People, you know, kind of respected musicians, and they would go and see bands and and that kind of thing. So uh, it was something that uh, my parents were um, amazingly enough. I'm amazed that they didn't say, "Don't ever go near, don't ever be a musician, son." But my 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 mum and dad were really supportive. You know, always had always have been, and. Um, so it, for me, it would just seem like a, a no-brainer. I've kind of known that I wanted to be a musician from a very, very young age. So to me, it was like, it was kind of, that was it. And did you take a regular job whilst, you know, learning and becoming a musician? Oh, lots, yeah. I mean, after, after education, yes, I, uh, I went into the world of work. So lots of different things. I've had some, you know, some bizarre jobs. And, uh, Such as? Uh, I worked on a market store for a while, um, but it was selling records. I eventually became a... A record shop manager. Uh, I think that was in the late 80s. I worked for Virgin for a while. I, I worked in London, building um, uh, megastore compact disc indexers in Acton. Um, I think that kind of thing. Spent a lot of time travelling over to France as well. Because by the uh, by the time uh, I, I, was, I was a young man, I'd met. Um, I'd, I'd fallen into my first serious relationship. We eventually got married. So and she's French. Um, so my first wife is French. But um, yeah, we were together for 20 odd years. So going back over to the uh, back and forth to France was just amazing. I went to the Louvre once in Paris in 1985, and we saw all these great works of art. And I'm a big art lover. I, I, I enjoyed studying. And art here history. we've got um, Chrissy Hines' artwork yeah. in the room we're in so, today. In fact, fantastic. Yeah. I didn't fantastic. know she could uh, create in this sort of way. Great yes. singer, obviously. Wow. I've seen an article where she's where she's showing her work at the easel, and you know she looks like she's busy painting. So yeah, that's not surising. But yeah, it's great. Do you rate this stuff? I mean, you obviously yeah. know about art. Does this look good to you? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, of course. I know I it's radio. We can't really describe it very well. No, it's true. <laughs> we can't. But you know, yeah, why not? If she enjoys it, and um, you know, it's it's definitely got a style. So it's good. Yeah, anything of its kind that's good and it's good. 
So, David, I want to go back to the record shop because I think um, being a musician is a fantastic job, of course, profession. But I think working in a record shop is probably second best. That's a good thing. Well, it was great because at that time, um, I guess when I kind of hit the, the, uh, the record shops, I'd all, in, in Nottingham there's a big shop called Selector Disc, and that was on... Um, in, in Market Street in Nottingham. So you'd be able to get things on. I used to work part-time in a bakery as a Saturday job. And uh, it, was, it was cleaning the ovens. And it, was like a, it, was, it wasn't a little bakery. It was a, it was a, a massive one. It's like a, like a home pride bakery. So uh, these, these ovens are huge. And I'd have to go in and change the filters and with my friend Simon. We did that on Saturday mornings. So I'd get pocket money or, or wages in that case. And I would go down into Nottingham and, and go to the giveaways and... You know, come back with the gatefolds, and I remember buying Foxtrot Genesis like that, and uh, um, you know, Black Sabbath records, Masters of Reality, or that kind of thing, Fleetwood Mac, all that kind of stuff. Anything of its kind, really, that I was sort of curious about. And uh, yeah, curiosity has always been the thing. And working in a record shop definitely fuels kind of your curiosity. Any funny stories about customers coming in? Any odd things you were asked for? Um, well, I do remember at one point um, we the, the, the shop that uh, I was working in got uh, all the walls painted black, of course. That's what it was like back in that day. And this guy came into the shop and um, he got dark glasses on. And um, as he came to the counter, he said to me, "Do you sell sunglasses?" And he was wearing dark glasses. And I said, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we don't. It's just records and, and, and CDs." And he said, "Okay, great, fine." And he proceeded to just turn on his heels, walked out towards the shop and walked straight into the window just like <laughs> couldn't <laughs> literally walked broke the in. window or just broke his nose no I think he just dented his pride more than anything but it was just like you know it, was a, it wasn't very cool as he, as he left the shop but it's great I so. often wonder if people wearing shades during the day they look cool <laughs> but it must be impossible to navigate your way around but in terms of the record shop I mean were there um, you know particular uh, types of customers and, and could you sort of recognise them when they walked in yeah they're one of the quite anorexic ones you know they're, they're the collector you know, the furtive collector, the one that would um, get the vinyl out and tilt it to the light and look for the rainbow effect on the vinyl. I have to say, a lot of the, the vinyl around the sort of mid-80s, I don't think it was particularly great. I don't know why it wasn't, but it seemed very flimsy and it wasn't heavyweight, so the sound wasn't very good. I remember buying some uh, uh, vinyl products around that time. You put the, the, the needle in the groove and uh, it would. It, there was a lot of background noise with it. So there was that kind of... You could really hear... It wasn't... It wasn't a quality product. Yeah. But the one thing about it, it's a bit like the album we're going to talk about later, which is actually a CD, but there's, you know, there's cardboard, there's sleeve notes, there's yeah. sort of physicality to it. There's something about the 12-inch the you know, album, 33 yeah. and a third album, that you can open up the gatefold, as you yeah. sleeve, as you said, and, and yeah. there's something there you can make connection with. Totally. Uh, and, well, for example, the, um, the Genesis Foxtrot record, I remember getting that for £1.99 in the giveaways, and I remember bringing it home... Um, Saturday evening, like sitting in the in the chair, headphones on, listening to it and going through the lyrics, and it was a, you know, you're looking at the artwork and you're you're completely immersed in um, in the music. It's a, it takes you on a trip. It does. It takes you. It transports you into another place other than the, uh, um, the, the the world. You know, it's a it's a you enter the realm of the imagination. 
you don't get that when you download a digital track, but uh, I guess so. times move on. So let's talk about you then. So you wanted to get into music, and I think you're quoted as saying, when Big Big Train happened, you weren't thinking it was going to happen for you, and by this point you were in your, your early 40s. So you obviously had um, a period where you were trying to get into the business, and obviously maybe you were coming up against some barriers. Yeah, I think so. Um, when I'd been involved with Rundle Music UK, which were, I was signed to as a writer, um, they were, I, was, I, was, I was signed to a development deal, and the development deal was to develop uh, me and the music I was making. Um, I th- I'm not sure. I think Steve Hogarth was in a similar situation. So I remember From seeing. Brilliant. Yeah, I think I'm sure I remember seeing Steve uh, tapes of Steve in the tape archive in the basement at Rondor Music. I'm sure it said Steve Hogarth, and I thought, oh, that's, I just made that connection. Um, but yeah, it was um, it was an odd thing, you know. It was um, it looked like, I mean, I was in the right place, but I was kind of doing the wrong thing. I, it, I don't think what I was doing was what they were looking for particularly and I don't think they really found um, a sort of a place for me I, I really enjoy acoustic music but I also like electronica so um, and as you can hear on the Dybal London record um, it's, it kind of marries the two you know there's bits of both and I find both equally um, beautiful you know to work in um, I, I don't know I, um, I think I've, most of my life as a musician I think I've been willfully um, uh, I've been my own on my own path with it, and I know the, that's why I'm very interested in music production. And uh, I probably see myself drifting more into that as I get older because I have I like making records. And you notice I say records. I, I, I like making. Um, I like making records, and that's what I do. I like writing songs, and I like creating them and bringing them to life. It's interesting a point about pigeonholing. You're sort of saying that you think that what you were doing maybe was almost a, a genre of your own and didn't think what the record company's going to think would shift singles or albums. Absolutely, yeah. And that time, bear in mind, to break a band or to pro- promote a band, uh, things were starting to dwindle and dry up. The music industry was changing as an impact of the, the internet on it and what have you. But before then, it was, um, it was starting to change. So the kind of the, if you like the... Um, the, the draconian stranglehold of the 80s and the 80s A&R was, that, that was on its way out and uh, eventually as you know with as the internet uh, progressed and musicians were kind of um, the money people kind of went to make money in more profitable areas I think so it just left music uh, in the hands back in the hands of musicians and, and uh, the journalists writing about it are, are people that care about that stuff they want to write about it it means something to them you know it's no longer just a, a quick book you know it was um, it was you know it was something that required time and attention so you stuck to your principles and your creative instincts did there ever occur to you at any point the thought that maybe perhaps I ought to do something that uh, fits their recipe rather than my recipe I gave it a whirl because when you've got management and you've got A&R and they're wanting to try and um, sort things out but I, I never really felt comfortable with it because um, I found there's, there's one set of recordings that I'd done and um, the A&R liked it and that was fine but I I didn't like it. I thought it was so removed from what I'd want. I'd envisaged these songs to be. Uh, so when um, I got round to making a solo record called uh, Wild River, it was eventually released privately in 2004. And you know, it, uh, that was made. In, they, they were my, it was my call. You know, I could I could accept it because um, you know I, I was quite happy to live or die or succeed or fail by my own choices and merits. I could accept it rather than it being somebody else's choices. 
and that's that's uh, that was the the reaction to it, if you like. Then, but it seemed to be like been waiting all my life, my career to start, and I could see you know the, the decades moving on and on and on. You're thinking, goodness sake, is it going to happen? So by the time I got to Big Big Train in 2000, and, um, you know, late 2008, um, I thought, you know, is it going to happen? I'd I'd kind of I'd, I'd stop dreaming, you know. I'd stop dreaming that it could, and uh, and, and that's where I was at that point. And we'll talk about the new material in a moment. Let's just um, spend a bit of time on Big Big Train. Uh, so this happened for you in the um, early two thousands, and uh, suddenly you're in the business. And uh, I guess in a way, you know, dreams fulfilled, or at least certainly starting to be fulfilled. Yeah. Well, it, well, we we did it um, when um, when I was off for the job. Um, I think I was paid one hundred and ninety nine pounds to sing on the whole album and that was just like a, a session fee and it wasn't really about the money you know and um, they said well they were in the red and um, and I knew that and Greg said there might be another album there might not be we don't know but thankfully um, for whatever reason possibly because of all the work that Big Big Trainer put in um, up until that point as they'd done uh, you know an album previously which had got um, a separate you know it's like gathering speed and um, the difference machine and all that. Um, that they they were on form, and um, so when we, we released mm-hmm. the hundred four yard, you know, it was almost like a coming of age in the sense of it, you know it being it, it, it struck a mark. So we got a we got a, a fan base of sorts, and also that coincided with the launch of Prog magazine. So suddenly there was a huge platform for for music, and we hit that at the right time. I think uh, the mistake we made with the Underfall Yard was we released it at the wrong time, so it, it couldn't be considered for the uh, uh, kind of um, best of albums that, that year. But that was a mistake we made. But you know, by and large, um, that that was a record that kind of sealed our um, um, I don't know, let us in, if you like, that kind of thing, or made it made people kind of sit up and take uh, serious attention uh, uh, about the band and the the, the positive reviews just filled us on spurred us on and so we we felt braver when we made fast guys deep time and that went on to the english electric albums and and you know it was just like a uh upon yeah big we change gathering speed we were gathering momentum you know and um it was great you know having been kind of out in the you know out in the wilderness for all this time and both big big train and and i i think we really were kind of the, the missing piece in each other's um, puzzle, if you like. Um, I needed a band like Big Big Train, and they needed a singer, and they needed a, an extra songwriter so that we could maximise what we're doing. It's interesting what you say about the momentum, because you know, you're clearly you know, very focused and very driven, and you were trying for a long time to get to where you wanted to be. Success with Big Big Train, but somehow there's nothing like success to bring more success, and clearly yeah. that inspired your creativity, made you braver, and yeah. I guess gave you more energy. Yeah, it did. It does, and it's, it kind of still does that now. You know, there's because um, I've been in uh, Big Big Train just uh, over a decade now, and um, so again, we, there's time. There's time for change, I think. You know, within uh, within Big Big Train, and the world's going through a period of change as well. It's been very reflective because you know the world has kind of stopped. It hasn't, but it kind of feels like it has. So there's been a lot of uh, reflection in 2020, you know, and time people have been taking stock about where they are in life and what they feel they should be doing or want to be doing with the remainder of their lives. Um, yeah, but, um, 
fascinating time. Well, here we are sitting face to face, albeit a metre apart, and yes. um, even that wasn't possible a couple of months ago. You know? Yeah. It was. So it was a real change. I mean, not to be with people yes. was an extraordinary thing. I think none of us have experienced ever in our lives. No, that's true. I mean, because there's one thing about solitude, but the enforced solitude is a different thing to actually choosing to be uh, away from people. I mean, I, I, I found it very difficult not to be uh, with, my, with my daughters um, because I was sheltering my mum. She's 90 years old and she's vulnerable. So of course, yes. So, so that's, what, that's what I had to do for, during that time. But it's, yeah, extraordinary. Let's move forward then to Dybald Longdon. How did this partnership come about? Obviously, I know uh, only one of you is now with us still, of course, but yeah. um, what's the uh, evolution of this? Um, I met Judy after a Big Big Train concert in um, 2015. We were introduced by a, friend, a mutual friend of ours called Joe Kendall. And um, I was talking to Judy in the foyer after the show, and uh, we, we got on. I, I spoke about my love of the first Fairport record and the Trader Horn record. And then uh, Joe contacted me a, a week or two later and said, Judy would quite like to do some musical work with you if you, if you fancy doing that. So I contacted Judy and we spoke about things. And I was looking for something, a project, a, a collaboration, that something I could produce, someone I could write with and make some, uh, something interesting with. And I thought she's um, a very unlikely collaborator. But I... I like that. I like the fact that you know, it's a bit of an odd couple kind of thing. You know, unlikely a, in what way? Unlikely in the sense of where she was, because she was in, in, her, in her late 60s, and uh, you know, and Bigby Train's um, noted for what it, it does. So there weren't really, um, there weren't really um, lots of parallels, but um, I quite liked the combination of us. And when we started, when she sent me some words, and uh, I just said, let's always try and write a few things, see how we go. It, you know, there's something something unusual about it, and I enjoyed um, Judy's um, directness with her words. It was um, particularly writing, writing and working with somebody who's a person of a certain age. I really kind of thought about the uh, those Rick Rubin recordings of Johnny Cash. You know, so you, you you're working with somebody who's seasoned, experienced in life, and um, they're far more accepting of certain things less accepting of other things and they kind of know who they are and they've got a, a wisdom about them you know and a, a gravitas and that's comes through in spades on this on this record there's quite a lot of a sense of sort of melancholy in her lyrics yeah you know, they're quite they're quite emotional um you know some of them are a little bit down yes um well yeah i guess so i think it's because um she knew that she 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 got emphysema and she had emphysema for a long time which, um, and she was on life-limiting uh, medication to, to keep her going. And so she knew that she, you know, she, she wasn't going to possibly have lots of time. And what happened was, um, she, um, then when she became ill, um, you know, uh, there was, there was um, again, it's it just, she, she knew that she hadn't got, with the emphysema, like she had her lungs up like lace, shot through with, um, black holes very poetic way of talking about the state of your lungs but she knew that and I knew that she really wouldn't have the um, wherewithal to fight it you know she just hadn't got the, um, the, the the physical strength to do it but she did her best and she said she'd stay with us for as long as she could which she did but um, yeah it's um, it's she recorded her vocals back in uh, April 2019 at Real World and that was before she was diagnosed with the lung cancer in um, November. But when we were recording, I didn't notice that we had, we had to detune a few tracks. 
because she, you know, when we'd done the pre-production and we'd sung them fine between us before, I noticed that I, we got to amend it, which wasn't a problem. <clears throat> we could do that, not, not a problem. But I thought, hang on, that's unusual. What's going on there? So thankfully, we got all the vocals down in that time, that period of time, that April, um, which meant that whatever happened with Judy's health, she'd done her vocals on the album. So additional challenge that many people recording an album don't have. For someone who's thinking about buying this, yeah. what would you say you know, would be the reason to go and buy the, the album? Okay, uh, why should you buy this record? Yes. I, think that, I think it's a strong collection of songs. The lyrics are written by someone who's at their peak powers. She had a very arch sense of humour. Um, but she's a uh, great um, um, awareness of, her, of where she was in the world. And uh, she's brave, brave lyricist, so it's worth it for that. The um, songs are dynamic, and um, they go through many twists and turns. And I really like it because um, the, music, the music is really a, a powerful storytelling vehicle, and my experience within progressive rock, bringing it to these songs made it um, um, exciting and the, the title Between the Breath and the Breath I guess is poignant too yes it is but, uh, again, with Judy's respiratory things uh, that's, um, that's a, an, an issue but um, it, wasn't, it didn't come from that it came from uh, a workshop that her friend Jackie Morris the, the illustrator and writer was attending and it was, a, it was, a, it was a, about the relevance of um, Folk, um, folklore in, in the 21st century and um, they were talking about is there, a, is there a place for fairy tales in the, in the 21st century and uh, I guess I mean Jackie said well yeah th- there is you know Game of Thrones for <laughs> one's one huge fairy tale but that, big that, long fairy that, tale yeah but the breath and a breath thing one lady at this um, meeting said oh it, um, it it would be you know, if, if fairies existed, maybe that it's like an eternity between one breath and another. So the notion of time is different. And that's where it came from. David Longdon, thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. David Longdon of Dival Longdon and their album is available now. And before that, Alexander O'Neill and his new material will be out in a matter of weeks and hopefully live dates in 2021. This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. Keep listening to Podcast Radio for more Private Lives very soon. Private Lives with Paul Robinson on East London Radio. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The The Corner Corner of Gray Street. Street.